We're walking through the book of Exodus. We saw last week that that God gifts his people with with spiritual gifts so that they can be used to build his kingdom. And then we also saw that he gifts his people with a, a special day, the Sabbath, which is then fulfilled in the Lord's day, what we celebrate on Sunday, so that you and I come, like today, we rest in Christ, we reflect on that rest, we imitate our Father in heaven, and all these gifts that are given to us are meant to be stewarded with care. Now, the passage that we were, are about to read is a complete interruption to the story in the flow of the book of Exodus. Yahweh is speaking to Moses up on Mount Sinai. He's telling him about the tabernacle that he intends to build, how he wants to make himself known so that he can dwell in the midst of his people. If you were to fast forward to the chapters following this event, you'd immediately pick up, and they are going to be building the tabernacle. Right here is something calamitous. Before they even get started with the tabernacle, the God who desires to make himself known sees that his people don't really know him at all. So we pick up chapter 32. We'll read verses 1 through 14, and I'll remind you that this is God's word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron, and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf and said, these are your go- and, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power, with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Here's God's word. 
Let's pray for his help. Lord in heaven, your people gather to hear. And so we pray that you would help us to hear you through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. You tell us that you will accomplish what you desire to accomplish when your word is sent forth. We pray that you would send it forth and give your people ears to hear. And again, Lord, would you be willing to use a sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. This account is actually referenced several times in the Bible. In fact, these events are are so often referenced in the rest of scriptures that they've been called a sad but quintessential picture of sin. And so as you examine the details, what you begin to see is the nature and the cause and the severity of sin, almost as if it's under a microscope for you and I to review. Acts chapter 7, Stephen, one of the first ordained deacons in the church, is arrested in Jerusalem for preaching Christ. And as the high priest begins to question him, He traces Old Testament history, pointing out over and over that the Christ was foretold throughout the Scriptures. And then when he comes to the events of the golden calf, he says in Acts 7, 39, Our fathers refused to obey God, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. Meaning sin is not external. It is cherished within your heart, Sort of like a fond look backward on your bondage. Romans chapter 1 touches on this same text. Describing the fallen condition of all mankind, but the vocabulary is completely harvested from Exodus 32. Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Hebrew people supposedly knew God. Months of deliverance, signs, wonders, miracles. They knew the God who spoke with his own audible voice from top of Mount Sinai. But when they were tempted, what they knew about God did not govern either their hearts, direction, or their thoughts or their actions. So claiming to be wise, they actually just became fools. And then 1 Corinthians 10. We read it a few moments ago. Paul says, Our fathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. In that sense, they were all baptized into Moses. They all ate manna. They all drank water from the rock. And oh, by the way, that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, they were overthrown in the wilderness. And Paul says, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That's actually the New Testament's commentary on this Old Testament passage. Because sin begins in your heart and it corrupts your thinking. You must learn from it. Let their example lead to your instruction and your encouragement. That's really what our sermon is about. We'll divide the text up into three. The gods, lowercase g-o-d-s, that you choose. Number two, the God who sees. Number three, the Christ who intercedes. We'll start with the gods you choose. Though they supposedly knew God, in the end, the God who is, the almighty, self-existent, unchanging God, 
is not the God they'd choose. Apart from his pursuing grace, we are really not different from them. The concept of making a golden calf, it holds virtually no appeal to most of us. So why is this the direction of the hearts of the Hebrew people? Because it's one of the, the gods that they have served in the past. And this is what they grew up knowing. If you were with us back when we studied chapter 9, we studied the plagues. And I, I quoted an author who explained it like this. He says, Many cults throughout Egypt were dedicated to the worship of bulls because they were a common symbol of many of the false gods of Egypt. So your translation in the Bible calls it something like a golden calf. This is an old calf. I mean, this is a, a one- to two-year-old young bull. It's a picture of a growing, maturing, strengthening animal. Virile, strong. And why is that superior in their minds? Well, you can actually trace the answer to that by walking through the text. Verse 1, the guy who represents Yahweh... This guy, Moses, delayed to come down. In other words, the God who truly exists does not arrive on their timetable. What do you do when the God that you know exists doesn't arrive on your timetable? What do you do when he makes you wait, when he says pause right here and trust me? When you're waiting for doors to open, issues to be resolved, certain outcomes of situations to become clear, in those moments, do you choose other gods? Because, of course, like the bull, those old, old idols whisper lies to you. They say, I'm here. I'm actually willing to help your need. No waiting. I'll give you a single 30-second thrill. I'll give you an escape from the mundane. When circumstances and people seem out of control, I'll give you a fleeting moment where you feel powerful, where you feel like you've escaped. If you were to worship a God, you would want one that meets your timetable. You'd choose one that never makes you wait. I suspect you'd also choose one that you could see. Remember, to them, Moses represents Yahweh, the unseen God. I mean, they've had some moments of sight. They've had visible signs of his presence. There was a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. Even now, while they're standing at the base of the mountain, there's a cloud up on top of the mountain, and Moses has entered into the cloud, and there's thunder, and there's lightning at the top of the mountain. But look at verse 1. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. A big bull makes perfect sense to them. Because this is a God that you can see which means that he's not only on time, but he's also at your service. That's the precise attraction that most of the idols that you serve hold over you. You don't serve them. They promise to serve you. At least that's what they say. One Old Testament scholar gave kind of like an excursus on why idolatry was so 
popular in the pagan world. And, and, and the description sounds so much like what you and I choose instead of the Lord. He says, he says pagan idolatry was guaranteed. It was selfish. It was easy. It was convenient. It was normal, logical, pleasing to the senses, indulgent, and usually erotic. In other words, if you can see it and hold it and touch it, then you begin to think that it serves you. How many of the idols of your own heart, the very things that attract you are visible and feel close. They feel at some level controllable and at some level they swear, I'm at your service. And you believe them. You believe them when they perform well for you. As long as they will give you a swell of emotions, as long as they will make you feel up, the market is good, my team is winning, I'm getting noticed, I'm being affirmed, I'm being valued, I'm being respected, I'm being appreciated. The God you would choose is not the God who is. No, the Lord insists on being believed in rather than seen. Which means faith in the Lord requires more of you. And though it is more uncertain, it is infinitely more stable. Because there really is only one true God. And it's easy to take a person or a thing or a position and to fix your eyes and your heart on that one. And though it can be a good thing, when you deify it, when you look to it to provide something ultimate for you, when you assign power and long for it to do for you, you are giving to it a hope, an authority that it actually cannot carry. And yet for a fleeting moment, it requires nothing of you. And it promises you everything. In fact, that's what's so great about, about sight. It feels like you can grab it and you can control it and I control my looks and I control my reputation and I control my resume and my money and my body and that person. But these things... And all the other idols that we run to eventually prove themselves to be sinking sand. You wouldn't know it by looking at me, but it's true that with age and time, your looks fade. That should have brought more laughter than it did. Your reputation will eventually be tarnished. There's going to be a moment where your resume is second best there'll be a time when your money tumbles that person that you've clung to for happiness, for good feelings disappoints you or leaves you that's why I say that faith in the Lord actually requires more of you you can't see God you can't control him, he's not going to do things in your way and in your timing but he is infinitely more stable because the God who is a spirit reigns not only over the physical world that you can see 
but also over the spiritual world that you cannot see. And in Christ, this God promises, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I've mentioned two examples of the gods that you and I would choose. One that's on time, one that's at your service. I'll mention one more. Apart from God's pursuing grace, we'd refashion the Lord and his worship into something that is culturally acceptable. Because let's be honest, it's always attractive for the God you worship to to also fit the cultural values. That's the kind of God Aaron makes. He takes the very gold given by God, meant to build the tabernacle. He refashions it. The people themselves take the words of God. They use them in a culturally popular worship to say from their own mouths, these are the gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And what do you know? There's always a religious leader to affirm it. After he builds the bull, he goes, oh yeah, you know what we should do? We should also sacrifice because God's told us to, to sacrifice. He built an altar. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. They rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, brought peace offerings. One commentator pointed out, there's no small irony to the fact there are no sin offerings. They blend what's true and what's false. One pastor pointed out, this is what liberal churches do today. They keep the same forms of liturgy that their teachings about God and Christ are false. won't surprise you if there is missing any truth about sin. Nobody's going to talk about a need for repentance. Nobody's going to talk about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And even if they'd never say it, the leaders of the church begin to feel the same way that Aaron feels. We've got to give them what they want because they, they demand it. In the last seven chapters, God has been giving instructions on how he wants to be worshipped. And Aaron feels the pressure. I mean, these are the kind of people who value a worship experience more than they value worship that transforms. In fact, they want to feel God more than they want to meet God. Does that sound like your culture? Or people would like a worship experience? They want to feel the movement of God. They want to be a part of that movement. But they really don't want to be transformed by meeting the true God. In a southern college town, wouldn't you want to craft your worship? So at least at some level, it felt a little bit like a band party. And then wouldn't you want to avoid things like confession of sin or or really even talking about sin? Instead, wouldn't it be better to focus your attention on how you feel about God and what you are doing for the Lord himself? You'd want to make your songs, anthems, to celebrate how much you love him. It's an easy snare. It was for Aaron. Because many churchgoers have no interest in worshiping God on his terms. Does how you worship God matter? Verse 6 says it matters immensely. Look at it. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
and you go, what's so wrong with Monopoly? What's wrong with Hopscotch? Except the word play in the, in the Old Testament has everything to do with, with revelry. And it almost always has sexual overtones. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul connects it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says idolatry leads to immorality. So when God prescribes worship, he leads his people into an uplifting covenant fellowship with God and with one another. And his worshipers are transformed. When mankind devises worship... It's a blending of God. It's a blending of cultural sensibilities. And may, it makes sense, doesn't it? We don't actually want it to transform us. We want to make sure it keeps us exactly the way we are. Full of religious experience. Light on heart change. Paul says these things are written down for your instructions. That you and I would not desire evil as they did. Let their example lead to your instruction and your encouragement. The gods you'd choose, now let's transition to the God who sees. The Bible opens, of course, with God creating a people. He forms them. He dwells with them. He offers a relationship to them. They supposedly knew him. Genesis chapter 3, they reject him. Exodus is about the God who makes himself known. Slaves who were in bondage, he delivers, he feeds and nourishes them along the way. He tells them who he is. He invites them into a loving fellowship. He gives them the commandments so they might know how to respond in love back to him. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to dwell with you. And the God who desires to make himself known is proven to be unknown by his own people. Which is why this is sometimes called another fall of man. It's like a second fall. And the obstacle to God's dwelling with his people is sin. And God sees it for what it is. Verse 9. Look at it. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people. And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. The first readers would have heard an idiom. To say, I have seen this people doesn't mean that God hasn't been paying attention and, and, and he's had a strain to finally see them. He doesn't mean anything like that. He means, oh, I know these people. They're unbending like an ox too stubborn to lower his head to take on his master's yoke. They refuse to lower their heads. They refuse to wear the yoke of obedience. What is it that God sees? Do you remember Exodus chapter 24? The Ten Commandments have been read, spoken. The people are panicked. Moses, we can't even hear God's voice. This is too scary. Why don't you tell us? Moses tells the people. And after telling them all that the Lord had said, they all agreed, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. But they have broken the first commandment you shall have no other gods before me. They've broken the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. They've also broken the third commandment. They've taken the Lord's name in vain by assigning the deeds of Yahweh to a stupid golden bull. They've taken all of his salvation acts, his deliverance, his signs, his wonders, and they've said, this thing... What did it? 
Most likely they broke the seventh commandment by giving themselves in sexual immorality. In fact, a case can probably be made that they broke nearly every commandment here. It's a violation of everything God said. Every single tiny sin that you commit is more complicated than you'd think. It emanates from your heart. It pollutes every part of your being. And let's be clear, the people at the base of the mountain do not see what God sees. Verse 7 says they've corrupted themselves. They turned aside quickly. And God's diagnosis of a stiff neck is really important for you and I to understand. Do I have a stiff neck? Lord, it's the first time that phrase is used in the Bible, but it actually ends up being the phrase that is common to describe the Hebrew people in the Old Testament, stiff-necked people. What's that mean? Stiff-necked people almost always believe that they are right. They never admit when they're wrong. They don't admit sin. Instead, they just try to hide it. Stiff-necked people want to play games with the Lord. They outwardly want to affirm truth, but meanwhile they're trying to build a double life. One that the world can see and one that the world doesn't see. One that maybe God can see and one that maybe God can't see. They fool themselves. They hear God's word. They don't heed God's word. They try to drown out the voice of the Holy Spirit. Another pastor said it like this, when they get into trouble, they're unwilling to be corrected. Yes, they say, but my situation is different. They offer some kind of excuse. When they go through suffering, they complain about it, but they never seem to learn anything from it. It is as if it is always someone else's fault, and they never change, and they never grow. And the saddest thing about a stiff-necked person is apart from the help of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't even know that his neck is stiff. Because he never bows in humble submission. Stiff-necked is a mark of pride. And it is inconsistent with humble followers of Christ. When was the last time that you learned something from what someone said to you? When was the last time that you acknowledged your own sin to others that you've hurt and apologized? When was the last time that your heart was tender toward the conviction of the Holy Spirit? When was the last time you you learned through suffering? Not blaming others, but seeing your trials as strangely a gift to be treasured from the hand of a loving Father. These things are actually written down so you and I can see what we would not otherwise see. Do your actions and attitudes and longings and affections reflect the God that you supposedly know? Am I stiff-necked toward the Lord or am I humbly clinging to Christ? Let their example be to you an instruction and encouragement. The gods you choose, the God who sees, we close with the Christ who intercedes. It's a way to read this text, I think, and possibly miss the clues. And I think if you miss the clues and the rhetorical invitation that God makes to Moses, this section will sound simply like severe instruction, dire warning, but there would be no encouragement at all. To be very sure, the gospel is offensive. 
but it's offensive because it tells you the truth about your condition. Here's the remarkable thing. There's several hints in the text that God actually desires to be merciful, even to stiff-necked people like you and me. Look at verse 7. The Lord says to Moses, go down. Does God intend to destroy the people? Then why does he send Moses down at all? The fact is that God sends Moses down because he desires to be merciful. He actually intends to save his people through a mediator. One pastor said the Israelites had not sent themselves outside of the grace of God. He's sending Moses to pray for their forgiveness. Secondly, look at verse 7. Moses, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Oh, God must be really upset about this. Maybe he's acting like your husband who's frustrated with the kids. Honey, look what your kids did. That's not what's happening here. The people have rejected God. The people have rejected Moses. By their own choice, they have alienated themselves from God. This is mercy. God says, Moses, make sure that you rightly identify yourself with those people. And Moses does represent these people to God. And of course, the irony is that that even as the people try to distance themselves from Moses, he's the only one that can save them. The greatest hint comes in a verse that is most commonly misunderstood. Look at verse 10. Moses, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Has God lost it? Is he out of control? Like, is he about to, to blow his top? No, he's actually condescending to speak in terms that you and I can understand. This is what anger seems like to you and me. But in fact, what he's doing is teaching us to comprehend how justice and mercy work together to accomplish salvation. When you first read that phrase, let me alone, it sounds like God is on Sinai pouting. Get out of my way. I'm going to hurt somebody. But think back. From what you've seen in Exodus, does God have any trouble executing judgment when he wants to execute judgment? The floating bodies in the Red Sea would tell you he doesn't have any trouble. He can drop the hammer whenever he needs to. In fact, God doesn't want to be left alone. That's why he invites Moses. Stay. Stay involved. Intercede for these people. In divine justice, of course, God could rightly consume them. And yet in divine mercy, God invites a mediator to come and plead on behalf of these people. And so here's the wrath of God in precious tension with the compassionate mercy of his character. I'll give you stiff-necked people a mediator. That's what Moses does. 
He goes and he prays for this people. And the Cliff Notes version of verse 11 through 14, Moses says, God, don't base your mercy on the character of these people, stiff-necked as they are. Base your mercy on your own power and your own promises and your own character. Otherwise, we have no hope. Did Moses change God's mind? That's how modern liberal scholars see this. That is not what Psalm 106 verse 23 says. It's actually a very different story. He said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. In other words, Moses, God's chosen one in that moment was not there to change God's plans, but to carry them out so that justice and mercy meet in a Savior who intercedes. It's a big Old Testament billboard to point you to Christ. Left to yourself, you would always choose a different God than the Lord. And though you know what this God commands, you know how he has made himself known, you have often rejected him. And God sees it. And apart from his pursuing grace, you're a stiff-necked people. I'm a stiff-necked man. Divine justice. God says, oh, I could rightly consume you. Divine mercy. God says, I'll send a mediator to plead on behalf of my people. They rejected Moses, the one who could save them. You must not reject Christ. Because Hebrews 7.25 says, He alone is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let their example lead to your instruction and encouragement. Let's pray. God in heaven, we